everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Palm Peeps. This is a super exciting one, I, a topic I've been long wanting to do. Christina knows that I've been talking about this since we started. So I'm excited that we're going to be diving uh, into talking about inhalers today, something that every doctor should know about, every pulmonologist should definitely know about, and most people know very little about. So I'm really excited that we're going to be talking about it. Christina, so happy to be back recording. Hey, Ferf. Yeah, totally um, excited to be back with you and our guests for today. And you have, I think, since day one, been really excited. And you're like, we got to do inhalers. And we're like, we're going to make it happen. So um, again, excited about today's episode and even more excited about welcoming our first and hopefully not the last clinical pharmacist to the show. So honored today to introduce Amber Martirasov, who is an associate clinical professor at Wayne State University and is an ambulatory care pharmacy specialist in pulmonary at Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan. Amber's specific interests include appropriate inhaler use, medication access, interstitial lung disease, as well as advocating for pharmacy collaborations. Amber, it's an honor to have you on the show today. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Thanks for having me so much. I'm super excited. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly, I'm not the only doctor who would say that if I had a nickel for every time a pharmacist uh, saved me with one of my patients, I'd be I'd still be doing this podcast since we do it for free, but I'd have a lot more nickels. So. <laughs> Um, next, we're welcoming back to the show, Nick Yoni. Uh, you may remember Nick, he first joined us on our episode about solitary pulmonary nodules. He's done multiple uh, radiology rounds with us. He's one of our associate editors here now uh, at Palm Peeps, and we're very excited about all the work he's been doing. Uh, he's a first year attending at MedStar Baltimore Hospital System, and he's fresh out of his pulmonary critical care fellowship at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. He completed his internal medicine residency at Mercy Catholic Medical Center in Pennsylvania. His specific interests include mechanical ventilation, POCUS, and medical education. And it's been great working with him. Thanks for coming back on the show, Nick. Thanks for having me, guys. And just as a little side, happy birthday, Mom. Oh, happy birthday, Mom. Right into the show. Come on the show next time. <laughs> I know. Nick Gaoni and Mom um, as a special guest for the next one. Yeah, great to have you, Nick. And um, really kind of kicking off 2024 with a great episode. Thanks for your work on that. And before we get started with our cases and our discussion today, we'll do a, our quick disclaimer, which is that this podcast is not meant for medical advice. Our opinions are our own and do not reflect our employers. The case references today are going to be HIPAA compliant, and we have changed some details to protect the identity of our patients. All right. Thanks, Monty. So as I said, already really looking forward to this discussion. You know, it's really daunting for patients and providers to talk about uh, inhalers and to make sure that the right medications are getting into the patient's hands and then hopefully their lungs. Unlike other meds, inhalers come in all shapes and sizes. There are different ways to use many of them. They're also in very different colors. Patients are often saying, I use my blue inhaler, I use my uh, yellow inhaler, and we may not uh, have a better understanding of the device itself. I have seen patients do a million different things with their inhaler techniques that are incorrect, uh, and there's usually only a couple ways to do it correctly. So part of this is understanding what different options are out there and how we can best help our patients get their uh, medicines. So none of us, I think, are overly comfortable with this. I think that a lot of doctors know how to use one or two. I honestly YouTube a lot, which I think many people should do, but I think there's not, um, there's a big need in the field for us to have a better understanding of the inhalers. We're going to do this through a number of cases uh, and then some associated infographics that we're excited to come out with, but let's dive into our first case. So we'll start off with our first case. For our first case, we have a 21-year-old female who has no real past medical history, but she's being evaluated for asthma. 
She reported having asthma as a child, but was told that she grew out of it by her primary care physician. Recently, she's been having more cough, more shortness of breath, and a cough that now wakes her up at night. She's gone to the emergency room intermittently over the past few months, and each time she receives albuterol and steroids is discharged from the emergency department with an albuterol inhaler and a five-day course of prednisone. She recently had an upper respiratory tract infection a few weeks ago and now has a lingering cough that is not productive, but it is deep and gets worse with exercise. She's not sure what makes her symptoms worse, but she had an old albuterol inhaler from before that she uses, sometimes taking two puffs back-to-back. This has been going on for about a year, but recently she's been feeling this way for weeks and is in clinic to be seen and hopefully get some answers. She's seeing if her symptoms are related to asthma and wants to know if she should continue using her old albuterol inhaler. I think given her past history and the clinical scenario, we can likely diagnose her with asthma, although obviously more testing may be needed. Recent guidelines have shifted towards giving an inhaled corticosteroid at every level of asthma severity, sort of moving away from the old using um, albuterol intermittently. I think in medical school, we were taught that inhaled corticosteroid may take some time to have effect. And while this may or may not be true, I think the more important thing to realize is that patients with asthma should be on inhaled corticosteroid, whether they are in an acute exacerbation or not. Thanks so much, Nick. And you provided a really common scenario that I think many listening today either have encountered or if not will encounter, you know, in the clinics and primary care offices um, or seeing someone on the inpatient side. You know, as you mentioned with the recent GINA guidelines, the addition of combination ICS or inhaled corticosteroid with a long acting beta agonist or um, LABA is recommended for maintenance as well as reliever therapy. And this is also something um, that we refer to as smart therapy. This combination therapy has been shown to reduce the severity of severe exacerbations compared when using a short-acting beta agonist or SABA, such as albuterol alone. So I think that the next step may be to discuss with her is using an ICS-LABA formulation um, based on these recent guidelines and evidence. Right, I think many of us today, like the first step is, yeah, knowing what type of medication we should be ordering. But the second step is really understanding and being able to talk with our patients, how is this medication going to actually be delivered? And I think that's one of our main goals of today's episode. We all kind of think in buckets, I think, in medicine. And I still like to think in buckets when I'm thinking of the three broad inhaler um, devices that are available. And the most common one that we may think of um, is the The first bucket or the meter dose inhaler or MDI, as a lot of people refer to it, and we'll refer to it as MDI going forward in um, today's episode. And I usually tell my patients that this is a device that delivers a dose of medication when you press on the canister itself. There are some newer devices, and hopefully Amber can talk a little bit more about this as well, but referred to as breath-actuated MDIs. So this um, inhaler provides a dose of medication when taking a a breath in. You don't have to actually press on the canister itself. And this was developed to really help eliminate patient coordination errors. So that's the first bucket. The second large bucket is the dry powder inhaler, or what we'll refer to as DPI going forward. And this delivers powdered medication with, with each inhalation. And the third and last bucket is the soft mist inhaler, or SMI. And this sprays a dose of medication when you actually press the device. So understanding how various medications can be be delivered is so important, and Amber, so glad to have you on today. And I know you provide patient counseling on proper use of devices on a daily basis, and would really just love for you to share some advantages and disadvantages of each type of the device that I mentioned. Yeah, thank you for giving that nice introduction. You know, I really appreciate it at the top of this podcast when we talked about how 
uh, providers often struggle with this. And I think that's just because there's so many different devices on the market. They look different and, and really trying to master that with all the other things you need to master. It's just difficult at times, right? I think the place I want to start first is the overall breath technique, because that is really where most of your patients will fail when using these inhalers. So in medical school and in pharmacy school, we often think of the um, MDIs or even the breath actuated inhalers as the ones that we need to puff. And for some reason, that becomes something where we're going to do a quick, rapid puff and inhale it as quickly as we can. We're getting better about this in the curriculum by saying that actually what we want is a steady inhalation. And really what we want to counsel patients on when they're using the MDIs or even the breath actuated inhalers is that it really shouldn't even have a significant amount of force with it. What we want the patient to do is just take a steady inhalation with minimal force because the more force that that patient uses to inspire, the more likely that the medication is going to hit the back of their throat and not deposit into the airways. With our dry powdered inhalers, the opposite is true. So we have a powder that we need to aerosolize. So as such, the patient actually needs to use a pretty deep and forceful breath, but they need to actually do that deep and forceful maneuver over about five to six seconds to ensure that it aerosolizes and then is able to deposit down into the airways. I think one of the things that I would highlight that we need to really make sure we consider is can your patients even do that maneuver? We know in some disease states that as they get more advanced or even like an acute exacerbation, a patient's ability to appropriately inhale may be impacted by whatever else is going on. So that a meter dose inhalers, other things that we really want to think about beyond the breath itself is does your patient have the ability to actually push down the canister and breathe when it's appropriate? So what do I mean by that? Well, when a patient is using a metered dose inhaler, you actually want them to start to inhale before they push the canister down. And the reason you want them to do that is because you're trying to create an airflow that when the medication is sprayed, it can just follow that airflow down into the base of the lungs. And so counseling your patients start to slowly inhale push the canister down and then keep inhaling three to five seconds and then holding your breath is really what's going to improve deposition into the lungs. If your patient has a rheumatoid arthritis or maybe has some kind of an injury to their hands or even they're just older and maybe have some Parkinisms where their hands shake, their likelihood of being able to coordinate that breath with the depression of the canister is often reduced. A great way to overcome that would be to use a spacer. You can also use spacers in your pediatric patients, right? Because they're going to have a harder time following those instructions. I think Nick and I've talked a lot about how our kids don't follow instructions well at the age that they're at. So that um, spacer really does make a difference. Yeah, Amber, I just want to pause and highlight some of those great points you made. I mean, I think it's so important to consider this inhaler technique. One, one to make sure it gets into the lungs, right? So it's being effective. And two, it's, it often takes things that are outside the lungs that control that, right? Like, so I've had older patients with scleroderma who can't really do an inhaler or somebody who maybe doesn't have some of the same cognitive wherewithal where inhalers sort of just being sprayed into their mouth and I don't think it's doing anything. And it's not only, as you said, like the effective dose, but also having that steroid in your back of your mouth can cause side effects, right? It can cause thrush and things like that. So, so important to consider all this. So thanks for, for highlighting them. I'm excited to hear the rest. Nick, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to highlight the spacer. 
I, I don't know about you guys, but I never, I knew what a spacer was, but I had never sort of used it. Um, then after, you know, my daughter was started on Flowvent for her uh, reactive airways, she needs to use a spacer because she's only two. And so now when I see patients with asthma, certainly in the hospital, I ask them, can you use your inhaler? Do you know how to use it and all that? And they're they're always like very confident, like, oh, of course I can use it. So I ask them to use your inhaler if they have it at the bedside. And it's usually as Amber described, they take this sort of forceful breath in. And, um, you know, one of the things I do is I go grab a spacer and give it to them and say, use this. And it just, you know, I feel like it takes out a lot of the coordination effort that you need. And it's a great device. And I don't, I, I think it's underutilized. So definitely very big spacer fan for people of all ages. Nice. Nice plug. Amber, keep going. Today's why I'm taking notes. I love it. So I'll transition now and we'll talk a little bit about the dry powdered inhalers. I think... With the dry powdered inhalers, again, it's that deep, steady breath. So this may be harder in patients with COPD or who are in an acute exacerbation. Things to think about as a provider when you're doing your exams is if your patient actually starts to cough while they're doing a deep breath in, they're not likely going to get good drug deposition because as soon as they inhale, they cough, that drug goes right back out. And you need three to five seconds for that drug to start attaching to the receptors within the lungs to do what it needs to do. I think the other thing with dry powders inhalers that is so frustrating is the devices are all different. Some of them require you to open a blister capsule, put the capsule in, puncture the capsule and inhale. Other ones are a little bit more easy and you just pull back a lever and then you can inhale. Um, But also if we think about um, some of the devices themselves like a flex inhaler, where the patient has to twist the bottom and they have to remember that actually they don't want to hold it up like a hamburger, but instead they're going to lean over it and breathe in. Um, there's a lot of problems with some, some of those things. And then I think, you know, the insurance dictates and, and ties our hands a lot on what inhaler device we can actually get the patient. I think we'll talk about that a little bit more. One of the things that I will say is as new inhaler devices come on the market, there's a great uh, advantage for us in the sense that if we think about the Ellipta device specifically, it's got a much larger lever that you can pull. The other thing I love about the Ellipta device is that the dose counter on the device is so much larger than we've seen on previous devices. So the patients are actually able to see how much drug they have left before they need to call in for a refill. The other thing that it does is it actually changes color. So it will turn red when they have less than 10 doses left. So again, triggering to our patients that they need a refill so that they can stay adherent to their medications. Here's the problem with the number of new devices on the market. And you may or may not be aware of this, but uh, unlike drug patents, which usually last anywhere between seven to 10 years, inhaler devices are a lifelong patent. So what that means is in order for generics to become available, the generic manufacturer either has to create their own device or they have to pay the parent company that created the original device to be able to use that device. And I think that that really causes a lot of problems in terms of cost for our pulmonary patients because the inhalers themselves are so expensive to begin with. But then even when generics do become available because of that device cost, the pricing point isn't set at what it might be for an oral tablet. So those are kind of, I think, important considerations to think about. 
Yeah, huge consideration for the cost there. And this is like a constant conversation I have. We should have a whole other episode about the economics of the inhalers and the patents. But I, I honestly, and it can be difficult to even test a script and see how much it can cost. I, I do often send test scripts and I have the pharmacy run how much it costs. And I encourage people to do that to think about their patients' uh, overall economic status. But I also tell patients, like, if you go and they tell you you have to pay $700 for this inhaler, like, please call me and we will see if there's something we can do about this and try another formulation that can uh, uh, give us the same results. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you, Amber, for walking us through that. We still have to touch on soft mist inhalers, but we are going to do that a little bit later in the episode when it comes up for uh, another one of our cases. But this is a great review so so far about MDIs and DPIs and our considerations. And I, I will also just make one more point about teaching your patients about inhalers. There's a really great study that did bedside education on inhaler teaching. Essentially, like patients got a new inhaler, we went and did bedside education. And the interesting thing about that is that most patients make mistakes and they, uh, throughout the process, a hundred percent of them can learn to use an inhaler in this one study in the hospital with bedside guidance and teaching, but the retention of that drops dramatically. So when they look at it again at their next visit, it's often dropped. But I think the two key points there are that one, education about the inhaler should be continuous, but two, if you have someone walking you through the steps, essentially all patients without a limitation will be able to learn how to use these devices, a relatively simplistic delivery model. Yeah, Amber, go ahead. I was just gonna add to that. I think one of the things that I could highlight as a pulmonary pharmacist is how important it is to also try to standardize the language that you are using for your patients, whether they're inpatient, in the ambulatory care clinics, or if they're at a community pharmacy, because retention is better if you standardize language and patients are hearing the same things across those settings. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's one thing where we lack in our pulmonary education is like, here's how you should talk about, talk about inhalers. Here's how we reference it in our teaching guides. Well, thank you so much for all that. So let's get back to our case for a little bit. Amber, I'm sure you get questions like this all the time. Can you share with us, but you have a patient like this, they have asthma, they're relatively treatment naive in their adulthood, they're having some symptoms and they're having exacerbations. Can you, what types of inhalers would you see commonly prescribed for either maintenance or reliever therapy that would be applicable for Nick's patient? Yeah. So I think if we're solely focusing on the guidelines and we remove insurance and everything else, ideally the inhaler that you would want is the budesonide famotorol. And that's because of the way that famotorol works. It's a long acting beta agonist, but it has a very rapid onset of action similar to what we see with albuterol. So Symbacort is the brand name in the United States. Budesonide famotorol is what we've seen in the SMART studies as well as in the Sigma studies. The problem is, is that insurance companies take a long time to uptake guideline requirements. And so getting two inhalers of a budesonide famotorol is very difficult. And so because of that, while we would like to implement smart therapy, I think the insurance ties our hands enough that what we ultimately end up doing is using a low dose ICS LABA. And in that case, because fluticasone salmeterol is generic, it's easier to get the dry powdered inhaler, that discus um, fluticasone salmeterol. So the discus would be one type of a dry powdered inhaler, a DPI. But if you know you live in an area where they're actually uptaking the guidelines, then budesonide famotorol would be the better choice, which would be an MDI format. 
That's great. And for uh, people who are still working through this, you are, we had a recent uh, Rapid Fire Journal Club on the novel start study that looked at the PRN, um, budesonide for Motorol. We'll be doing Sigma and smart therapy coming up. Um, so pay attention to those and we'll tell you what type of inhalers to prescribe. And then that's a great tip that the DPI version can often get uh, in a more generic, affordable form. I was wondering, Amber, if you could highlight something in this. We talk about the guidelines, Gina guidelines, the SMART guidelines, you know, use your, your PRN Simbicort. And, you know, my wife has asthma and she'll be using, you know, varying amounts of Simbicort. The problem is that's not the way it's written on the script, right? When we prescribe it. So, you know, how do we guide our way through telling the patients like, hey, we have this new way of treating asthma, you know, just use you know, as much sort of Simbicort as you want when you're having exacerbation, I think it's up to like maybe 14 puffs or something in that neighborhood, but they might run out of the inhaler faster. And these inhalers are like very expensive. So how do we sort of like navigate through either? What do you tell your patients or do you have sort of a fix for it, I guess? So I have some fixes. Nothing is perfect. And I think that's simply because every patient that you meet is a little bit different, right? You have higher socioeconomic, higher educated patients compared to those that might be a little bit more difficult. I am a big fan of providing patients with instructions in my chart. My health system uses Epic. So we have electronic ways of communicating with our patients. This works very well for your patients that are willing to use electronics because it gives them something to refer back to of like, this is how I do it. There is also a really great resource, which I'm happy to provide that actually is a, um, asthma action plan that now incorporates smart therapy into it. You know, your old action plans were like your red, yellow, green, but it didn't talk about smart therapy. That new asthma action plan actually provides very clear instructions on how to use this if they're using it as a single maintenance and reliever therapy. Technically, the budesonide fomoterol or that Simbacort is now generic. Again, we're running into issues where it's not cheaper than original Simbacort. I have seen some providers do a Simbacort as, or budesonide for Motorol as the rescue inhaler, and then they will give a standing um, budesonide as the maintenance inhaler. I think, you know, I wish there was a better answer, but the best thing I can say is that we have to get creative in how we can give our patients guideline-based care until the insurance formularies wake up and realize that we would actually be saving money on the back end if they would just pay for what guideline-based care is. But this is a natural problem with insurance companies, regardless of what disease state we treat. Yeah, absolutely. And good plug to advocate for your patients, uh, talk to your insurance companies, see what we can do, talk to your hospitals about getting the appropriate medications on formulary. All right, so this is a great discussion so far on the possibilities for maintenance and reliever medications for this patient with asthma um, and relying on our ICS LABA more than we have in the past. But there are many more cases that we see in clinic, uh, a lot of them that have inhalers, and there are different types of inhalers and inhaled medication delivery systems that we should uh, get to. So Nick, why don't you tell us about case number two? So for our second case, we have a 63-year-old male with past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, and ongoing tobacco use who has about a 25-pack year history, who has been trying to cut back on his tobacco use and is presented to our office after being sent by his primary care provider for ongoing shortness of breath and dyspnea. Before coming to, to the office, he underwent pulmonary function testing, and these tests are consistent with the diagnosis of COPD. 
He says that he thinks he had asthma as a kid, but he's not sure. He thinks that he grew out of it as well. He doesn't exercise much, but he's been trying to walk more recently as he is retired. He states that he's able to walk as far as he likes, but after about a mile, he starts to get a little short of breath and has to slow down. He received an albuterol inhaler from his primary care physician, and he thinks it helps when he takes it. He hates the taste of the medicine, however, so he tries to not take it as much as he likely needs. He's never used an inhaler before and has a hard time timing his breath with the puff of albuterol, despite um, his previous providers and pharmacists practicing with the patient. He does note that every year, even since he was a young adult, he would get diagnosed with bronchitis and require some combinations of steroids, antibiotics, and prednisone, and he would usually get better in about a few weeks' time. Great. Thanks so much, Nick. And, you know, I think you, you're you providing, you know, a different patient scenario here, you know, comparing to, to case one. And this is um, one that we commonly see, again, across multiple areas in patient ambulatory care setting. We talked about GINA guidelines. We talked about SMART therapy so far as well. And I think this is a great opportunity to talk about the 2023 GOLD report, which updated the treatment table for patients with COPD, suggesting starting most patients on a combination a lava long-acting beta agonist combined with a llama long-acting muscarinic agent. And we know that these can be done through individual devices, but conveniently they can also be given either a DPI or an SMI, which we haven't talked about yet, but would um, love Amber to tell us a little bit more about that. So Amber, I know you um, reviewed DPI earlier. We said we're going to get into SMI. So wondering if you could talk through some scenarios where um, one device or the other may be better suited for this specific patient. Yeah, so I'm going to shamelessly say I love the soft mist inhalers in a lot of patients because the way that the soft mist inhalers work, they're actually more similar to a nebulized solution than any of the other devices that we've talked about. So what that means is your patient is going to get better drug deposition as long as they can just inhale um, fast or slow, deep steady, all of that. Now, the recommended technique for inhalation is similar to an MDI, where they start to breathe in, they push the button, and then they keep breathing in slow and steady. But unlike a meter dose inhaler, which sprays forcefully, the soft mist inhaler is just providing a nice fine mist. So there's not going to be as much deposition to the back of the throat um, as you might see with a meter dose inhaler. However, there are some problems with the soft mist inhalers. First and foremost, many of you may not be aware, but the patient actually has to put the device together themselves. So when they get it from the pharmacy, it comes in a box and you have the actual inhaler device and then there's a separate canister. And the patient has to figure out how to pull the bottom off, push the canister in, put the bottom back on, and then prime it in order for it to work effectively. This is very difficult for your elderly patients who don't have a lot of hand strength. The other problem is, is that if they're not educated on how to put this together correctly, they can actually break the inhaler because when you put the canister into the bottom, many patients think that it needs to go flush with the bottom of the device. It actually doesn't. It sticks out a little bit. And so what happens is patients will just be banging it on a table and then unfortunately break the device, which presents a lot of problems because then they can't get another prescription from the pharmacy. So then they don't have therapy for a month. The other uh, thing to think about with the soft mist inhalers is top. So T-O-P, T is in Tom. So twist, open, press. So your patient actually has to be able to twist the bottom of the canister, 
open the top, and then when they start to do that slow inhalation, press the button down so that it will soft mist into their mouth. Similar to patients with weaker hands, if they have really arthritic hands, that ability to twist can be very difficult for them. So I think those would be the two things that I would stress the most is educating your patients that they have to put the device together. And if they're not able to put the device together, be willing to ask the pharmacist at the community setting to put it together for them. Once they cash them out, they will do that if the patient asks. And then second, be mindful of what your patient's hands look like and their ability to twist. One other consideration with the soft mist inhalers, because it is a fine mist and because it's spraying close to the eyes, if your patients have a glaucoma or concerns with ocular disorders, we do want to use these cautiously. But again, because of that lung deposition, I think that these are one of the better devices to use, especially in your patients who have um, COPD, where their lung functions are declining and the ability to do a deep breath may be difficult. Oh, Amber, thank you so much. I think like Firth said earlier, we're taking so many notes and I wish we could have you with us when we're, when we're educating patients at all times. And I know there's a lot of colleagues that, that can provide this great information. And I just think it's a, a wonderful way for, for everyone to be more informed. You know, and you alluded to the soft mist inhalers um, being almost like a close to more of like a nebulized formulation. And I know we haven't really touched on that yet, but many patients have nebulizer machines at home. And, you know, I know Nick's talked about, you know, where he's prescribed nebulized medications for patients and an easy way and format to do that is to prescribe a nebulized ICS along with a nebulized albuterol to get the same effects of inhaler if that's what is optimal for the patient or that's what they can do. But Amber, curious to hear your perspective on incorporating nebulized medication as these primary therapies as we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's a really important conversation to have. I think when you think about the lungs themselves, if your patient is admitted to the hospital with an acute exacerbation, we know that even while they're in the hospital, but in the you know two weeks post-discharge, their lungs are still a little bit weaker. And so the ability to do those forceful maneuvers with a dry powdered inhaler is difficult. I really appreciated Nick's perspective earlier when he said, like, I love a spacer in the hospital. You could also use nebulizers in the hospital. And there are studies that demonstrate when patients are discharged home with either a metered dose inhaler or a nebulized solution following an exacerbation, they're actually less likely to be readmitted to the hospital because they're actually getting drug deposited into the lungs. I think the other group that we really have to be mindful of are our COPDers that are moving towards the end stages of COPD or who we start to see declines in their pulmonary function. Now, unfortunately, there's not a study that gives us a clear breakpoint of when we should start considering nebulizers. But if you have a patient who comes into your clinic with advanced COPD and they tell you, I don't feel like my inhalers are working, prescribe them a nebulizer and then follow up with them in two to four weeks and see, do they feel like the nebulizer works better for them? And oftentimes they will say, yeah, it's working a lot better. And that's because their lungs are getting the medication without any effort on their part. I have one last piece that I will say about nebulizers, and that is that I think all providers have to be very aware of the cost associated with nebulizers. So nebulizers are actually treated differently than other drugs. They are not typically covered by your Medicare patients Part D as in dog plans. Instead, they are covered by your Medicare Part B as in boy. 
And that's because it's considered durable medical equipment because the drug is delivered through a nebulizer, which is a medical device. It's semantics, it's obnoxious. So what you have to think about with your Part B patients is that when they are picking up these drugs, there's going to be a 20% copay across the board unless they have a secondary plan for their Medicare. And so that 20% for things like albuterol, ipatropium, budesonide, not going to be that expensive. But the newer agents, your long-acting beta agonists, your long-acting anti-muscarinics are likely going to be more expensive for the patient. And so then I think it becomes this discussion with yourself, with the patient. Do we do a less optimized, less guideline-based approach and get them something versus getting them nothing because the inhalers may not work as well for them? Amber, I'm so glad you brought that up. The fact that we do have now like a LABA, Aframotorol, Nebulized Solution, um, uh, brand name is Bravana. And then we also have uh, Revifenacin or Ulperi is the brand name, a long active muscarinic agent that we can use in a Nebulized Solution. I definitely in that exact situation, advanced COPD, they're not inhalers, don't seem to be working as well anymore. I've tried these and if they can afford it and if we can get them covered in a Nebulizer machine, which is usually... It's relatively straightforward with a face-to-face documenting need for the durable medical equipment, then this could be a good solution for them. And I, you know, I agree there are not great studies with a, a set breakpoint. A lot of this has to do with inspiratory capacity and inspiratory flow. I will say anyone whose FEV1 is less than a liter, I start to wonder if this is going to be an option for them. So I use that as like a, a hard breakpoint where I say, let's talk about if you're feeling the effects of your inhaler, or let's do a, a inhaler test and see if you have effect uh, in your lungs going on. Yeah, that's a great plug, I think, for individualized asthma action plans. We should all have a generic one that we bring to patients, but you have your patient, you should work with them together to see what works. All right, great. Well, that's case number two. I think we have some options for Lama Lava for that patient based on their gold status and and maybe a plug from Amber for an SMI as long as a patient can afford it cost-wise. Why don't we dive into case number three? Cool. So case number three. So to, you know, to round this out, um, we have a 79-year-old male with past medical history of HEFREF, ESRD, COPD, formal tobacco use. He quit about seven years ago and some osteoarthritis in, you know, his hands, hips, and knees who presented to the emergency department with increasing shortness of breath, dyspnea, and sputum production. The patient states that he used to follow with a pulmonologist, but re- um, but has not recently in at least a year. He's been having difficulty getting to all of his different physician's appointments. He states that he thinks he did a bre- some breathing tests a few years ago that showed that he had COPD and was started on inhalers at that time. He's not sure of the exact type of inhaler, but he thinks one of them was beige, and then he used a red one whenever he would get short of breath. He has not been able to fill any of his medications and states that he only has his red one at home that he thinks is albuterol because it sounded familiar to him. He states that his medications have gone gone up in price and he's no, no longer able to afford them. He came to the hospital today because he's having increasing shortness of breath with cough and some fevers at home. Uh, he thinks that his family members have been sick. He knows that he's been feeling unwell even before this with increasing loss of appetite and possible weight loss. He's not sure if he's lost a specific amount of weight, but he states that he cannot wear his wedding ring anymore because it falls off of his finger. 
He recalls getting a CT scan of his chest about three years ago for some spots on his lung, but isn't sure whatever sort of came of that. He's been more sedentary because of his shortness of breath, and he thinks the pandemic has really limited his mobility and ability to exercise. Right. Well, this is an unfortunate presentation, one that is all too common. The patient has COPD. It sounds like they were on a maintenance therapy and possibly a, a combined triple therapy with a lava lama and ICS. But now they're presenting the hospital with sort of progressive shortness of breath, meaning some criteria for COPD exacerbation, but also sort of failure to thrive, declining function, um, worsening potential progression disease, could have an acute pneumonia on top of it. Maybe there were some things that uh, needed to be worked up, but were lost in the pandemic and, and due to his financial difficulties. I think it's really common when a patient knows that they have some inhaler medicine, but don't know exactly which ones they are on. So Nick, I'm curious to hear what your approach is when a patient may not know the name of the inhalers or the name of the medications that they're prescribed. Yeah, I, this is like maybe my favorite game. Um, the patient will say, you know, I'm on a beige inhaler, I'm on a red one, I take the blue one, I, the green one, and then we sort of go through it. You know, there, there's a, I often spend time sort of Googling, you know, the the names and showing them the device. There's also sort of this nice infographic that's, I think, made its rounds um, that puts all the different inhalers. Um, and actually, one of our uh, one of our former fellows at my fellowship, one of his uh, QI projects was he printed out that infographic and laminated it and hung it up at every exam room. So when the patients would say, you know, I take the red one. I'd be able to sort of just pull it down and show the patient and ask them to show me which one they took. And they're usually able to sort of pick out the one that they take, although, you know, Simbacord is red and Pro-Air is red, so it gets a little confusing, but I think we're usually able to sort of parse it out. You know, beige sort of trilogy comes to my mind, as you mentioned, as a Lava Lama ICS. Uh, two strength doses, one um, is a lower dose ICS and the second is the higher dose ICS. And if I'm not mistaken, it is an elliptic device. Elliptids are common devices that, you know, I don't think are difficult to use, although you're, you know, this is me talking who had to YouTube how to put together the soft mist inhaler, you know, more times I would like to admit, certainly, and I probably broke at least one canister. But I'm interested to hear Amber's thoughts on elliptids and certainly the triple therapy there's two different devices that i can think of and you know they're they're very different actually as you sort of mentioned earlier one is a dpi and one is an mdi and you know is there any drawbacks for specific populations certainly with our copd friends you know i think when you think about the dry powdered inhalers we've kind of mentioned some of this where they have small dose counters the elliptic device i agree is a lot easier to use has a bigger dose counter when we think about the historical discus one of the biggest problems I've seen with patients is, you know, the discus actually has a cover that they have to pull back and then there's a lever that they have to depress. And I have seen multiple times where patients will pull and depress that lever, not realizing that they're wasting doses. Similar with the ellipta, if the patient pulls and has like a nervous habit of pulling that lever across and doesn't realize that that's how it actuates, they're going to waste doses, um, which is unfortunate because Again, then we can't get them more doses for the rest of the month. You brought up the other triple therapy, which is the Brez-Tri. The Brez-Tri is a little bit different because we actually use glycopyrrolate instead of our normal um, anti-muscarinic agents like eumeclidinium, acladinium. The other thing I think I would just note about the Brez-Tri is that the way that it's developed, they put the drug in a lipophilic matrix. 
And if you're not aware of that, sometimes, especially in your COPD patients, you're putting them at risk for developing a lipid-based pneumonia. It's not been seen a lot in clinical practice, but it can occur. And so just something to keep in the back of your mind as you're using that. But because they created a lipophilic matrix, you don't actually have to shake that inhaler. With the metered dose inhalers, a common complaint that you'll hear from patients is, hey, my inhaler works great at the beginning of the month, but towards the end of the month, I feel like it's pewtering out. It's not working as well for me. And that's oftentimes because even though the patients may do the maneuver of shaking their inhalers, the normal matrix in those MDI inhalers doesn't allow for equal distribution. And so early on in the use of an inhaler, they're actually going to get a little bit more drug therapy than they will towards the end of their inhaler um, because of that natural process where the drug just kind of falls to the bottom of the canister. You don't have that problem with the Brestri inhaler because it has that lipid um, protein matrix. I think the only other thing I'll mention about this patient is I think this is the perfect case. We've already talked about nebulizer solutions. This is the perfect patient to start thinking, do we need to maybe not use inhalers at all? And should we consider using um, nebulized solutions? I'm going to make a shameless plug for something that I've used in my clinic for the last uh, five to seven years. There are two different devices on the market that could potentially be used either as education tools or that can be used for you as a provider to create objective assessments as to whether or not a patient may be able to generate flows appropriate for the different inhalers. So the first one is the in-check dial. I do not get paid anything by these, but I firmly believe that both of these devices are great to use. I wanna make that very clear. There's no money at stake here for me, but the, the in-check dial allows you to change the inspiratory flow rates and really be able to see, can my patient generate enough flow to be able to use a specific inhaler device. So it's completely focused on the individual devices, ellipta, hand inhaler, the discus, the metered dose inhaler, the soft mist inhalers, it does all of those. The other device which I use more commonly in my clinic is what we call the Vitalograph aerosol inhalation monitor. And this was actually designed to educate patients on how to use their inhalers appropriately. It looks at both their inspiratory um, flow rate, it looks at the time that they inhale, and then subjectively, it looks at the time that the patient can hold their breath. It consolidates all of that data and then tells you whether or not the patient has good technique, suboptimal technique, or poor technique. And so you can use this as a way to educate patients to improve their technique, but if they're not able to improve their technique in my clinic, what we'll say is we've tried to educate this patient. They're not getting the technique with a DPI, but they're doing great with an MDI. We switch them to all MDIs or they failed everything. We can't get through to them. They're not changing their approach. So then we will switch them to nebulized solutions. And these tools really are effective in the clinical setting if you can get your department to pay for them. In-check dial is a lot cheaper than the Vitalograph, but they are both great to use. Amber, that's so awesome. Thank you. I was not um, aware of um, either of the last two resources that you mentioned. So 
hopefully those listening today will will be hearing about them for the first time and just being able to add, you know, great resources that already exist and be able to apply that for our patients. Um, you know, and I think from today's discussion, you know, Nick provided us kind of three different cases, three different frameworks of patients that we see commonly. And we've talked a lot about the number of different products and formulations available for inhaler use and that people with obstructive lung disease are commonly prescribed. You know, we know it's still a little hard to remember all the names, the doses, the colors of each medication, but fortunately there are a couple of other resources that we can use to share with our patients and strongly feel like specifically for pulmonary fellows, like every pulmonary fellow should get should do their own PFTs to understand like what what's happening when patients get PFTs in clinic. But I feel like every pulmonary fellow is going to be needing to go through an inhaler 101 class. So uh, Amber, stay tuned. We may we may come up with another creative way to do some more education. But you know, Nick, I know you've been working hard on a, on a pump peeps infographic that we're going to be sharing, and we you have been kind of spearheading and working with our friends at Pearl's Pharmacy, who also have an amazing app and um, infographics that not only provide the type of medication, but, you know, what should be considered, um, gives a rundown of low, medium, high doses for each product, as well as ICS strength. But interested, Nick or Firth, any other resources that you want to recommend to listeners right now? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that uh, Nick mentioned is just like YouTube, honestly, is that I looked this up a lot. Most of the pharmacy, when you, you I, I would say you could go to the, the actual medications website because they all have videos on instruction, but I just look it up, you know, you just type in the, the inhaler into YouTube. There's going to be something that comes up. Ideally look for the resource that's coming from either the manufacturer's website or the COPD foundation. Um, a bunch of the asthma foundations have videos for this as well, um, but it's worth getting that each time. And Honestly, if you, I, I've had patients who I know I can teach how to do it, but then sort of it falls off. I just tell them to watch it like every two weeks, you know, just to remind themselves how to do it uh, and make sure that they're getting uh, appropriate delivery. And those uh, in-check and vitalograph devices sound amazing. I have not used them myself and I'm going to look into it literally right now after this. I was just going to say, I would make a shameless plug. I think YouTube videos are great, but you mentioned the COPD Foundation. The COPD Foundation actually has an app that you could have on your phone while you're in clinic that would pull it up and then the patient can download the same app. So it kind of puts all of the inhalers in one location instead of them looking for specific um, you know, YouTube videos for the different devices. And then Nick mentioned earlier, and I have to do another shameless plug, I think I'm so proud of your, you know, co-fellow who laminated those inhaler charts and put them in the clinic rooms. There's great inhaler charts through the American Lung Association and also through the Asthma Allergy Network that can be utilized similar to how Nick's co-fellow did and hanging them up in the offices for patients. The COPD Foundation app is is on, it's so good. Like Amber mentioned, or I've the uh the videos are like on there and it's it they're standardized and they go through each technique with each specific device so like very very helpful amazing app yeah that's great and we'll make sure we post some of these resources and then you know that copd foundation app sometimes in my copd visits i feel like it's just me and the patient huddled around our phones because you know you can also do the mmrc and the cat on the app like the app is amazing <laughs> it takes you through the whole visit which is well, this was a fantastic time talking today. Um, finally got to tackle this topic, and I think we did so in a great way. And, and we're going to have some resources posted along with this site that hopefully all of you guys can use. 
we like to end each show with a takeaway point for our listeners to remember. Um, so we'll each go around and take one. There are like so many that it's very difficult <laughs> for me to pick one. But I think mine today is just going to be um, to watch your patient user inhaler and think about the non um, lung, non pulmonary or non like lung function things that may get in the way of effective drug delivery. So do they have the manual dexterity to do it? Do they have the cognitive ability to understand how to do their inhaler or assemble it? I think thinking about cough for DPI, like Amber said, is a really important one. If you have a patient where cough is a huge part of their uh, illness burden. Uh, Christina? I'm going to take from Nick earlier when he just kind of put a plug in for using spacers, you know, in the, both in the inpatient and the outpatient setting. Um, I think we can do a lot more of that and kind of work with our patients in that way. Amber, what about you? I'm going to shamelessly call out all providers in saying if you are not comfortable with inhalers, then just go watch the videos and learn how to use them. Because if you can't educate a patient, they're never going to get better. So if you feel uncomfortable educating, then you need to learn so that you can educate appropriately. I don't know if I could list all the pearls that, you know, I learned today, but I think the one thing that I want to highlight is that when this is coming out is, you know, time with Flovent coming off patent, which presents a lot of challenges for our pediatric patients, our pediatric pulmonologists, and even, you know, adult pulmonologists, because it's taking away a medication that's been a mainstay. Just want to, you know, give some solidarity to all of our pediatric pulmonary friends who are sort of going through right now to find the medication that the patients need, my daughter included. So, yeah, absolutely. She can always get the medication she needs and everything remains mild and well controlled. All right. Well, Nick, Amber, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was a real pleasure. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Make sure you join us in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, follow and like us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Blue Sky, all the random social media apps. Uh, make sure you subscribe and rate our uh, podcast wherever you're listening. Uh, this episode was uh, written by Nick. Uh, it was edit edited and produced by myself and Christina. And the music's original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you next time.